I'm Andrew Murata, host of the Education Leadership and Beyond podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you are listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here, and today I'm talking with Patricia Tish Jennings, who is a professor of education at the University of Virginia, a recognized leader in the fields of social and emotional learning, mindfulness in education, and the author of many books and articles. Today we are focused on her most recent work, Teacher Burnout Turnaround, Strategies for Empowered Educators. Lots to learn. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Patricia Tish Jennings is an internationally recognized leader in the fields of social and emotional learning and mindfulness in education and professor of education at the School of Education and Human Development at the University of Virginia. Her research places a specific emphasis on teacher stress and how it impacts the social and emotional context of a classroom. As articulated in her highly cited theoretical uh, article, the the pro-social classroom, Jennings led the team that developed CARE, a mindfulness-based professional development program shown to significantly improve teacher well-being, classroom interactions, and student engagement in the largest randomized controlled trial of a mindfulness-based intervention designed specifically to address teacher occupational stress. She is a co-author of Flourish, the Compassionate Schools Project curriculum and integrated health and physical education program, and is co-investigator on a large randomized controlled trial to elevate the curriculum's efficacy. She is currently the principal investigator of Project Catalyze, a study that will examine whether care enhances the effectiveness of a social and emotional learning curriculum funded by an education innovation research grant from the U.S. Department of Education uh, to conduct it. A member of the National Academy of Sciences Committee on Fostering Healthy Mental, Emotional, and Behavior Development among Children and Youth, she was awarded the Kathy Kerr Award for Courageous and Compassionate Science by the Mind and Life Institute in 2018 and recently recognized by Mindful Magazine as one of 10 mindful researchers you should know. Earlier in her career, Jenny spent more than 22 years as a teacher, school director, and teacher educator. She's the author of numerous peer-reviewed journal articles and chapters in several books. For example, Mindfulness for Teachers, Simple Skills for Peace and Productivity in the Classroom, The Trauma-Sensitive School, Building Resilience with Compassionate Teaching, Mindfulness in the Pre-K through 5 Classroom, Helping Students Stress Less and Learn More, Part of Social and Emotional Learning Solutions, a book series by W.W. Norton, of which she is editor. Today, we'll focus on her latest book, Teacher Burnout Turnaround, Strategies for Empowered Teachers. Tish, thanks for joining me today, and say hi to everyone. Oh, it's quite a pleasure to be here, and hi to everyone listening uh, I hope you're doing all right in the midst of all of this that we're dealing with today. Well, we're glad you're here. And uh, before we go any further, the first thing I want to talk about is this. If you could design your own school, what would be the uh, couple key components? Yeah, I was thinking about that. And just so you know, I did have my own school back in the day. I founded a Montessori school back in California, which was part of my earlier career. Um, and there are elements of that philosophy that I would definitely bring into learning environments. The, the thing that I think is key is empowering students to be active, um, motivated uh, learners by giving them opportunities to explore what they are interested in and finding ways to link what they're interested in to uh, the learning standards that we all have to deal with, rather than trying to frame curriculum that we hope will entice their interest. So, I mean, I think in the Montessori philosophy, following the child is really key. And when you do that, it relieves a lot of stress because when kids have the tools and the motivation to learn independently, the teacher's role becomes more of a facilitator and less of a sage on the stage, so to speak. Very cool. Love that. The, and you know, one of the things I want to make sure that, uh, you know, today we're focused on your, your latest book. It's called Teacher Burnout Turnaround, Strategies for Empowered Educators. And one of the things I want to make sure we, we talk about here is what you mean by teacher burnout. So can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, teaching is an incredibly 
emotionally and cognitive de cognitively demanding profession. Um, you have to pay attention to so many minor details simultaneously. Um, plus, you need to uh, manage in your mind the content that you are working on engaging your students in, and you have to keep track of time. All of this is <laughs> while you're interacting with 25, 30 um, young people who have their own agendas and their own personalities and issues. Um, and we don't often give teachers, first of all, we don't give teachers the credit we all deserve for the incredibly demanding job that we're doing. But we also don't provide the support teachers need in order to manage all of this uh, psychologically. Um, and this has been going on for a long time, but it's gotten more difficult over the last, I'd say, 20 years as students are coming to school less prepared to learn for various reasons. The families, families are under a lot more stress um, with two working fam parents, um, not a lot of time, uh, you know, budgets stretched to the limit and the other kinds of social disruptions that we're all dealing with, including COVID. So you, you, over these years, the, the teacher burnout and teacher stress has become more and more evident. And I could see it back in the 80s. I saw it looming in the future. But now you, with, with COVID, you see it hitting really record proportions. It's having to deal with too much and not having the resources to deal with what you're trying to deal with. And I, when I say resources, I mean all kinds of resources from your own psychological capacity to provide the self-care you need, um, which might also involve financial needs, plus, uh, and the um, structural and uh, resources that you need to do your job. So, you know, you're buying your own materials, you're, you know, buying uh, art equipment, you're paying for your own Wi-Fi while you try to teach online. And when your technology doesn't work, you have to buy new headphones or whatever. I've talked to teachers who are spending their own money on headphones that they didn't really need, but they need them to work and they're not getting reimbursed. So in all these aspects, we have been asked to do this heavy, heavy lift without support. And we're just seeing it fraying on the, around the edges really badly right now. I understand. I mean, and, and I appreciate you explaining that because that's, you know, you, one of the things that I really feel for uh, teachers are the ones who not only are they trying to do what their job is asking them to do, but then they also have their own children. <laughs> and so if they're in that virtual environment and they're trying to figure out how to teach in virtually plus have their kids taught, <laughs> it's like, hmm, that's, yeah, that's. A huge stress one. It really is. And, and you know, another, another piece of this that has becoming, becoming, is becoming more evident is demoralization. Demoralization is a little bit different than traditional burnout in that you're being asked to not only do something that's without the resources you need, but you're being asked to do something that you don't think is the right thing to do. So this is when, um, when teachers are being told, Oh, now that you're online, you have to give them all grades. If they don't show up, then you've got to fail them. You know, a teacher who knows their students and knows that they're, they can't get online because they don't have the resources at home or whatever, to, to think that you have to give that student a failing grade when you know they don't have any choice in the matter is incredibly demoralizing. Um, there's, that's just one example that I've seen of how, and when you become demoralized, it's it, that the, the, what people tend to do is drop out of the profession. Um, and right now we have a huge growing teacher shortage. And the last thing we need is having our teachers leave this profession. It's really an important time for us all to stay on board. <laughs> Very much so. And it's, it's difficult because it's like you said, we already had the shortage and this is helping to kind of push that a little bit further. So, you know, and, and I got to tell you, your, your book's awesome. I had a, uh, had a difficult time trying to eliminate some of the questions that I was going to ask. And uh, so, uh, so let's start in uh, chapter one and uh, I could have actually probably done the whole interview on chapter one and maybe in just the beginning of it. So bear with me a second. Uh, you know, in chapter one, you identify something that you call our super, our, our, our 
our human superpowers. You call them the three C's, connection, communication, and cognition. Could you share a little bit about these superpowers and what they have to do with education? Yeah. Um, so I've been doing a lot of thinking about our evolutionary history. And human beings are pretty amazing. If you look at how far we've come to from, I don't know, we're not sure about this, but you know, let's imagine 70,000 years ago, uh, we were one of the last remaining hominids in Africa barely surviving because there was this huge drought. But somehow or another, we figured out how to get uh, food from the ocean and we started thriving. Maybe there might've been 10,000 humans around that time. If you think about it, that's that's where we came from, right? <laughs> you see where we are now? We are everywhere in the world. How did we do that? We did that because we of these three C's. We could we could connect with one another. We could build community together so that we could survive by you know sharing support with one another, um, helping. We, we have a very hard time surviving by ourselves. So the more we're able to cooperate and do things together through this connection that we have, the more we're able to survive. Human beings just are not animals, quote unquote, that, you, that could survive by ourselves. We just don't have that capacity. So our social and emotional connection is really powerful. Our ability to communicate, the fact that you and I are talking right now, and we can talk about these very abstract things, we can plan things together, we can talk about things that have happened in the past and learn from them. We, so because of both of these things, well, all three of these things, I'll get into connection, uh, cognition in a minute, we build culture. So with the cognition, we have this ability to problem solve and troubleshoot things in ways because we can imagine something in our minds. So if you couldn't have an imagination and hold on to something in your mind and then think about it and maybe imagine several alternatives and figure out a way to, I don't know, create a wheel, <laughs> you know, then, so it's in that process of those three C's together that has created culture, human culture. And what's education about? It's transferring culture to younger people. Um, you know, so that we can pass on the understandings of, of all these centuries of learning onto the youngest of us so that we can continue to develop and grow. So because these three things are so powerful, when we, we can harness them. So for example, if you're having trouble managing a, a class, maybe they just don't feel like they are part of a community. Maybe you could do something to generate a feeling like we're all in this group together and we care about each other and we want to do something really great together. So when you get, a hu get human beings to feel that way, there's really nothing that you can't do because that is that human superpower that, that when you harness it, you can... You can do anything, basically. So when, as teachers, when we learn that about ourselves and our students in our schools, um, we can transform our schools from these archaic, which we can talk about in a minute, factory model systems to really flourishing 21st century learning environments, which we really need to do today. Excellent. And thank you. You know, and it's, and, you know, basically you move forward, you, you, What's, what I think is really neat about your book is that you start off in, in talking about this as the, the past and how, uh, as humans, we interact and so forth, and you bring that forward into how we're going to transform school, which I think is really cool and unique, so it, and it works well, so um, kudos on that. And it, you know, in chapter two, you talk about the stress matrix, and what do you think is a major stressor for teachers today? And we talked about this just a little bit here in the beginning, but I was wondering if you could just go forward this and uh, how we could go about addressing it. Well, there's lots of stressors. And one of the reasons I called it the stress matrix was I was looking at all the different levels of the system from the student all the way up to the government and all the different places that um, stress points impact the teacher's uh, ability to function and their well-being. Um, one of them I think I could just point to because it, it's a good segue from what I just said is this factory model. And, and I, 
the system itself um, makes teaching really difficult. And I'll step back a minute, because if you think back into the, the Industrial Revolution, uh, it was the first time in human history when you could mass produce something, uh, you know, uh, mass produce tools, um, transportation, uh, whatever. Um, and it was a real, uh, it was a real revolution. And when people started thinking about scaling education, because before then, either schools were very small and very limited, um, and really the only people who had um, formal education were, you know, elite white people, um, and mostly male white people. <laughs> um, and then later on, when, when during the Industrial Revolution, when education became compensatory and everybody had to go to school, um, the, the thought they had was let's use the most modern technology to scale education. It made total perfect sense back then. And so what you see are these standardized rudimentary systems that are very rigid and they look like a, an assembly line. So if you're a first grader or a second grader or a third grader, you're gonna be doing X, Y, or Z. And it doesn't matter if developmentally that's not really where you fit. Um, you've got to be in that place in the assembly line. Um, all of the subject matter that's being taught has been, um, uh, what's the word? It's been siloed. And it, it's very difficult to integrate some of this learning because the ways the system is set up, you've got to teach math during this time and you've got to teach language during this time, language arts, when those two things don't necessarily be, need to be separated that way. Um, and that's not how human beings actually use math and language arts. They're not used separately in that, like in a silo. Um, there's a whole lot of other elements to the system, but if you, when you start thinking through how these systems were founded, um, it totally makes sense why it doesn't work anymore because <laughs> we don't, it doesn't match what we know about human development and learning. You know, it does not at all. Because the other, the other problem with it is a good student, quote unquote, is a very small, fits into a very small space. <laughs> and if you look at a normal curve, you're missing these huge sections on either end. And you're trying to teach to this middle all the time. And so you're constantly battling with the other two thirds of your group because they don't fit into this model of what we have expected our students to learn. One more thing before I go on. When they started the original system, they were only trying to get the masses to about the fourth grade level. And so it was a lot easier to just systematize learning if you're only getting to fourth grade and you have really only basic knowledge that you're trying to transmit. But if you're trying to create people who are inventive and curious and, and uh, creative and forward thinking like we need today, um, this system of learning is just doesn't work anymore. And it's probably the biggest stressor that teachers are having to cope with. Gotcha. The, uh, and, you know, and it's one of those, those things that, uh, like you said, we're, we're trying to figure out how to, in, in some ways, what I hear you saying is, that, you know, it's that, that thing about a, what is that, a square peg in a round hole? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, one of the things that uh, comes out in, in, in these early chapters is you talk about um, the importance of teachers understanding certain things about themselves. And one of, the, one of these ideas is it's important for the teacher to learn self-management. Could you talk about that? Yeah, well, one of the things, that's part of um, this ability to develop your own social-emotional competence. That's, and and social-emotional and skills generally are very context-dependent. So the way in which you apply uh, that competency can shift depending on what context you're in. So for example, if somebody asked me tomorrow to go be a police officer somewhere, I would not be able to do that job because I don't have the social emotional competence. I know that right now to do that job just out of the blue. But if you think about it in so many places, uh, if you have a bachelor's degree, you can just 
get a job as an emergency teacher and people just assume, oh, well, they can teach, they have a bachelor's degree, right? Well, there's a whole skill set of social emotional competencies that we need in order to uh, function well in this very challenging environment. Part of it is being aware of our own emotions and aware of um, how how those emotions impact our students' learning. So, and, and their behavior, obviously. Th this understanding came to me when I was supervising student teachers in a teacher education program for 15 years. And I spent all those years observing teachers and intern teachers in classrooms. And what I started to see was when an adult in the environment was feeling frustrated, feeling annoyed with a student's behavior, they often did things that were counterintuitive and counterproductive unintentionally that actually created power struggles with that student um, because they, they, <laughs> they created a, a feeling in the student that they were being unfairly picked on. And we're, I, I watched this for a while and I kept thinking, what is going on here? And this is actually what led me to go back to graduate school and study stress because I thought, what's going on? But what I realized is when you're feeling stress, and there's so many things to create this feeling of stress when you're teaching, it could be as, as easy as, um, you know, the bell ringing. So many teachers I know tell me they hate that. They're trying to get something done and the bell rings out of the blue or the principal comes on the intercom and interrupts what you're doing. Um, anyway, so you're in that aroused state and a student drops a book you know it's easy to imagine that that was intentional it's just what we do as human beings when we feel threatened we we immediately assume it's somebody's fault somebody did something and we might say something to that student that will trigger their reactivity and they might you know feel unfairly um, picked on and then i've created this negative spiral <laughs> that, that that can exhaust both of us, especially um, the adult, because adults don't have the same kind of stamina as younger people do. Um, and so that's how, that's what I mean by self-management. Um, so that when I am in that situation, the first thing that I can start to recognize is, wow, my stress level is starting to rise. Now, this is a hard thing to do because when you're teaching, your attention is outwardly directed on so many things to take a moment and just check in, how do I feel? It, it takes intentional, uh, intentionally doing that. And then I can go, okay, I need to calm down. And then there's some very simple things you can do. Take a few long, slow breaths, just get your feet grounded on the ground, and then you know, take a breather and then deal with what's going on around you. Because if you don't do that, if you allow your stress to interfere, you end up feeling overwhelmed and saying things and doing things that are counterproductive. Uh, that's, and, and I love that advice because that's something that uh, too often, you know, it is, you, you get caught up in whatever emotion, whatever stuff outside the classroom. Uh, maybe you're anticipating you got a meeting that you're not looking forward to that's going to come up later in the afternoon. And then suddenly Steve does something. And, <laughs> and so then, you know, the, it's just, just enough to ignite the kettle, the, you know, the, the, the keg of, of uh, powder there, or it's just enough to make you do whatever, or, or just the fact that, you know, it, it suddenly always becomes Steve, you know? <laughs> well, yeah. And, and um, the, the thing that struck me during those years of observation was how easy it is for us to take that personally, like to think that that was intentionally done <laughs> to get me upset. And, and then if you take the child's perspective, they feel like you're picking on them all the time, right? Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> because you've got this dynamic set up and it's, there's only one way that spirals, right? <laughs> Down. right. Yeah, it's not going not gonna to turn out well. No, yeah. not, not if you've lost control of that. And, you, you know, and it's, it is, it's something. And I, I just love that section of the book is you're getting into these different types of skills that a teacher needs to be focused on because they're, you know, it's a big part of understanding who we are in that classroom with the kids. And that's an interesting chemical mixture going on there. So, <laughs> so good stuff. The, uh, in chapter four, changing the way we think about school, you note the key to unlocking school transformation is systems thinking. What do you mean? So 
over the years, if you look at the history of school reform, which has really not gone anywhere as far as I can see, um, you know, that's not totally true. I've been watching this process for, well, I got my, my master's and my teaching credential in 1980. So that's when I started teaching and seeing, you know, seeing this evolve since then, which has been a while. But um, what, what we tend to do when we think about school reform is we tend to think it's got to be top down. Like, okay, we're going to change this system. Let's get a new superintendent. Let's get a new school board. Let's get a new no child left behind law. You know, I, let's create you know, expectations. Oh, let's do more testing. You know, oh, let's do this. Let's do that. There's, it's very haphazard and it always, and because it tends to get really political, it kind of swings back and forth. I've seen this in various areas. For example, I used to teach uh, language arts instruction in a teacher ed program and, you know, language arts instruction, let's do phonics. No, let's do whole language. No, let's do phonics. You go back and forth and you get nowhere. Right. Um, and so what I, what I started to see was the, the system, uh, if you, if you look at how the system of how people learn, how children learn, how they grow, how they develop, what are the actual natural systems that are already occurring here? Like, how can we take what is naturally happening on the ground that we see as teachers every day? And rather than having the system impose uh, structure on us, extend our own structure outward so that what we're doing is we are tweaking this, we see the system and we're finding places where we can tweak it to fit our needs and the way we wanna teach rather than having this big monolithic system pressure, put its pressure on us to, to fit into a mold that they want us to. So it's basically like seeing that I'm in this system and once I see it, then I can start hacking it from the inside out. So it's basically a, a, a teacher hacking manual <laughs> to hack the system from inside. Uh, and when I, when I realized that that was possible, it got me really excited because I thought, we just need a guide for how to do this. And that's what the book is intending to do. Very cool. And it, it, it does, which is really nice. It, you know, it's it, you know, and I, I think, you know, just like you, uh, um, one of the things that you, you know, you kind of get into in this is just this, this whole idea about explaining systems thinking and, and how the things can get out of whack with, you know, somebody, like you said, comes in, I've got a great idea, you know, and, and uh, <laughs> we're going to do this and uh, whatever this is, that becomes the thing. And, uh, you know, there's, there, is there really any reason why it was chosen except that the person had that idea and they had the ability to say, we're going to do this. <laughs> and then you hear all the groans in the, <laughs> in the meeting, right? <laughs> right, exactly. You know, what are we in for now? Because uh, he or she just came back from a conference and, uh, you know, obviously, that's oh so 2019, but, <laughs> but, um, but yeah. And, uh, so anyway, thank you. You know, one of the things that, uh, one of my favorite chapters is chapter five and in chapter five, we get into something called, um, mind traps. And before we get in, you know, before you get into the, this aspect of thinking, could you talk about what the title of, I mean, not the title, the first section you get into in this, in this chapter, because the chapter is called Mind Traps, but the, the first section is called Uncovering and Overcoming Scripts. And I think this is so powerful in understanding what we do. Um, and the, some of those things that happen in the school building that probably lead us astray. Well, you know, one of the, a script is a, um, It's a, it's a belief that we have that we've learned from our society in some way or another. It's usually very unconscious. You're not often, I mean, that's the reason why you have to uncover it because it's, it's hard to see. Um, it's something that you believe about reality that um, limits you in some way. And one of the things I talk about in the book is, is something called time urgency because it's a common 
uh, is a common issue that teachers deal with. We, because we're so limited by time, and this is because of the factory model, because the time is siloed the same way along with everything else. You've got to finish in this period, right? Um, and that, and learning doesn't really happen that way. It doesn't, you can't, it's very hard to compartmentalize learning like that. But anyway, um, so, so time is one of those stressors teachers deal with all the time. And all of us were raised in some cultural setting where there are norms around time. And for example, when I was a kid, uh, and this was back in the day when you could actually go out and play unsupervised, which is hard to find these days. But if I didn't come home on time, um, I got in big trouble because they were expecting me to, um, you know, they didn't, I didn't know at the time that they were also probably worried about my safety. I just thought they were really, uh, that I was really bad is what I thought. <laughs> and so when, I, and, and I would get involved in whatever I was doing and it would all of a sudden dawn on me that I was late and, I would rush home and then I would get yelled at. And so in my, in my upbringing and in my script is being late is bad. It's really, really bad. And you've got to be on time. Now this can, this is reflected in everything that I do because whenever I'm late, I start feeling anxious. I start listening to myself, judging myself. Those are all like parts of a script. Um, when I realize that it's just my script about being late, I can take some breaths and calm down and I'll be fine. Um, but it takes self-awareness to notice when that's happening. On the other hand, when somebody else is late, I can find myself being really judgmental because in my mind, being late is bad. Well, there's many, many, many circumstances where being late is not necessarily bad. There's different cultures where um, late isn't even a thing, you know? <laughs> So, um, so uh, it's, it's easy for me to project that belief onto other situations without being attuned to what's actually really happening. Um, I gave an example of a, a situation that, like this that happened in a, in a classroom of a teacher I was training in a care workshop who was really upset because one of her students was late every single day. And she was so annoyed with her that she was punishing her. She was having her sit, you know, outside the group. The little girl was getting anxious and laughing and, you know, disrupting. Anyway, when she asked the little girl why she was late, she finally realized she hadn't even communicated with her about this. The little girl told her that her mother worked graveyard shift and couldn't get up in the morning to help her get to school. This was a second grader getting to school without any adult supervision. And when you hear a story like that, you think, oh my gosh, she, the fact that she's even there is amazing, you know? Most definitely. <laughs> so that's how scripts uh, form and that's how they can interfere with us, with our interactions with our students and our, and our situation in our classroom. I, I want to say real quickly, one of the biggest scripts that we all have to cope with as teachers is an old script about what a teacher is. You know, teachers in, in our culture have this uh, aura of kind of martyrdom. It's like, we will work because we care about kids. We will work so hard. We will do this. We will do that. We will give up our time. We will give up our money. We will do all this because we are self-sacrificing very good people. And back in the day when they were scaling schools, they actually referred to the women at the time. They were a lot of women because they could be paid a third of what the men were getting paid. They called them angels. That was how they were identified. And so we, we as a, as a um, profession, have to realize that that is a, a script that society has put on us for many, many, many years. And it's time to take that one off. <laughs> it's, it's definitely, you know, it's, it, uh, it's funny because it, you, could, you could look at just something like within a high school, typically you have uh, sponsors of, or coaches of different academic as well as athletic programs and uh you know unless you're one of the those major sports that brings in a lot of money you tend to be doing it pretty much pro bono you know and uh, <laughs> and uh, a lot of times providing even your own uh resources to make it exciting and fun and all that everything from you know the foreign language club to uh you know you, you name it uh 
um, yearbook and all kinds of stuff that they're probably doing um, besides the sporting activities. So, um, you know, it's, <laughs> it fits right in with that. So that script isn't, is an interesting thing there. And I, I, but I really appreciate that chapter. I read it twice and it was cause it was cool. I went through it and I said, I like this. I got to go back and remember these scripts because there's so many different things that it applies to. So thank you. I, I, you know, one of the things I want to, as we're moving forward here, um, you get into this idea of design thinking and, you know, as you're progressing through it, you have your, your books laid out in, in three distinct uh, um, segments and you, you start getting into what, uh, how to think about school transformation and you talk about design thinking. Can you talk about what role design thinking plays in school transformation? Sure. Once we realize that we um, have these scripts that are holding us back and that we are sort of stuck in a system that has uh, a kind of uh, inertia that we have to figure out how to overcome, when we have a, a, a situation that we want to change, if we can look at what the ultimate outcome is that we want and, and design backwards to try to see how we can get there, um, often we, we do it the other way around. I mean, we, we've learned design thinking when it comes to building curriculum, but how do we do that when we think about the whole school? So um, one example of that would be, let's say, I think I use this as an example, actually, now that I think about it. Let's say um, the school is really committed, everybody in the school is committed to deeper learning. And the teachers have started to work on deeper learning, but they're starting to realize that they're just getting into the depth of something and then this stupid bell rings, right? <laughs> Never yes. happened to you? Oh, yes. <laughs> right? Yes, very much so. And you're like, well, we can't do deeper learning in a 45-minute period. That's crazy. So the, you have a meeting and you go, well, what's the goal here? Deeper learning is the goal. How do we do that? Well, we need more time. Well, how can we create more time in this system that bells and and you know silos and like okay maybe we could have longer periods maybe we can rearrange the schedule completely well how do we do that you know <laughs> we we have to we have to think about all of the elements that are affected by the schedule all the people who are stakeholders in this schedule and we have to backwards design a schedule that gives everybody what they need. You know, taking it, I'm thinking of an elementary school because that's where most of my experience is, that takes into account the specials, the lunch, the cafeteria use, the, the gym, <laughs> you, know, the, 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 you know, whatever. And then you have to rethink how, how are the, maybe we don't even need these time increments like we're doing. Um, we could try all kinds of things, but we have to experiment. So we might need to come up with a, a, a design that has a prototype and we share it with our community and then we get feedback to try to see, well, what would happen if we did this? Maybe we'll experiment with one week. Maybe it's the last week of school. Who knows? A week when, or maybe the week before Christmas, kind of one of those weeks where everybody's not, their mind isn't in it. And let's just see what happens if we try this schedule out and then we can tweak it, right? To see how we can make it work better. And all of a sudden the music teacher's like, I don't have any time now. <laughs> <laughs> <Right. laughs> that, just as a side note, what, what you made me think about there is that, and a lot of times the music teacher in a, you know, the smaller schools, you know, they're, they're on their own. Whereas at least there's, there's a couple two, uh, two, right. A couple second grade teachers, you know, a couple fifth grade teachers and, and then the music teacher. And <laughs> so you get, you know, you go work, work, collaborate with the art teacher or something. Well, and then sometimes the art and the, and the music teacher are going to several schools a week, right? <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, pretty wild. They, uh, you know, in the last segment of Teacher Burnout Turnaround, you share thoughts about teacher leadership and student leadership. Could you explain what you mean and what role it, it plays in helping create better school environments to have teacher and student leadership? Yeah, you know, I discovered this idea of distributed le leadership where um, the, the, rather than, it doesn't shift the hierarchy of a school necessarily, I mean, it could, but it's really more about recognizing the natural leadership that is occurring in a school. Um, there's, you know, in any given school, there's gonna be somebody who's like, for example, really good at art, and it might not just be the art teacher, it could be 
uh, one particular teacher is just really creative. Or another teacher might be really good at certain kinds of technology. You know, we all have these gifts that we bring to our, our jobs. But often, either the teacher gets overlooked and sometimes will, you know, the, the principal isn't taking advantage, best advantage of that, that teacher, or they are being taken advantage of, quote unquote, because they're not being given any extra time or any release time or any extra funding to do all this extra work. So in a distributed leadership model, the principal needs to identify all the particular leaders in every particular area and acknowledge that that person has these leadership skills and give them time and space to actually shine and do and provide that kind of leadership for the school rather than having it all land on the principal's shoulders. Because today that's a really tough job too. Uh, and without empowering the, the teachers and giving teachers some of the leadership um, responsibility, but also you know compensating them for it, um, the job is just really difficult. It's funny, one of the schools that I've discovered recently that I, I talk about in the last chapter uh, and it, actually the principal wrote the foreword of this book. It's a charter school here, a public charter school here in Charlottesville, and it's actually in Albemarle County. Um, and it, uh, it's totally project-based. It's all student-centered. It's a great school. It's a middle school, high school combination. Anyway, I went in and I interviewed Chad, the principal, Chad Radliff, who you can read about in the, the foreword. Um, and I said to him, are you using distributed leadership? Because I was so impressed with this school. It was amazing. He says, no, no, no. Um, they're all the leaders and I just do what they tell me to do. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so that's even a, even more distributed leadership. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Do <laughs> um, you, you want to share anything a, a little bit about the students? Just to, you know. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Um, I am continuously amazed at what young people are capable of when they're given an opportunity, uh, when they're not shackled by this um, siloed factory system um, where they have to learn this or that at this particular time for this period of time. Um, when, when their gifts and uh, things that they bring to the table are honored and recognized, well, recognized, honored, and supported, um, I think what we can do is limitless. Um, if you look at that bell curve I was talking about, in, in terms, let's just say there's some skill that we're trying to teach our students, and some of them are really good at it, and some of them aren't very, and some are way off the charts, right? The problem is we can't standardize that kind of learning. Um, we can acknowledge, wow, this is a student is really strong here. This, but the same student is not so strong over here. Well, we, yes, we might need to balance that a little bit, but why not let that student shine where they are and build onto their strengths rather than trying to say, oh, well, yeah, they're really good at drawing, but you know, they're never gonna be a math expert. Well, so what? <laughs> you know, it's like, Let's take whatever that gift they have and let's go with it, empower them to do the best they can. And, uh, and, and when kids are given that opportunity to follow their own spark, recognize and follow their own spark, you can't let, you can't stop them. You know, they're amazing. I don't know if you saw the, the kid of the year that time just put out as a, a little 15 year old who is discovering ways to purify or to test water um, using a phone app. She, she calls herself a scientist. She's 15. And nice. she's inventing things and solving really important problems. She solved that problem because she read about the kids in Flint, Michigan, and wanted to create something to help them. Um, so I'm, the, the more we can provide our students with the ability to find their spark and go with it, the easier our jobs will be um, because then what we're doing is we're getting out of the way and giving them all the resources they need. And we don't have to know 
how to purify water to help this little girl figure that out. She can figure that out, but we just need to show her where to go, like where to read about that, how to find out the answers to these questions. Um, and uh, so it makes our jobs easier. It also creates an opportunity for our students to, to learn in ways that will set them up for the future. Because the way we work today in the world is not in these compartmentalized siloed ways of doing things. We work in teams, creative teams that are trying to tr solve problems. And, um, and we've got a lot of problems to solve today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I can, you know, I can tell you that uh, it's, it's awesome when you get the kids involved and you do want to hear their voices instead of just kind of like say, why don't you go over there and take care of that instead of, you know, actually bringing them in and, and saying, so what do you think about this? And it's interesting what they can actually the shine the light on. I've had that experience. It's very cool. You know, I, I really think that if students were more engaged in how we are transforming our schools, they would have a lot of really good ideas. <laughs> very much so. Very much so. They live in that world. And it's like, it's amazing how some people just totally ignore the fact that they're they're the tribes, you know, they're part of that world. That's, you know, bring them in, figure it out. Let them tell you what they really don't like. And you'd be surprised how, you know, I, I think some of us would be so surprised about to how they, they'd really be able to tell you and, and not tell you things you think are going to be dumb. They, yeah. Cool Definitely. stuff. They have a lot to offer. He's so much so. Uh, Tish, we're getting close to finishing up. Uh, before we go, if someone wanted to connect further with you and or learn more about teacher burnout strat, uh, turnaround strategies for empowered educators, where would you send them? Well, um, they can find my website at um, the University of Virginia. If you just Google University of Virginia, Patricia Jennings, you'll, I pop right up. I'm also on Twitter at Tish Jennings and on Facebook at Tish Jennings. So if anybody wants to follow me there, um, um, I post a lot of things about um, what I'm doing and, and you can follow up on these kinds of ideas. And like I will post this when it, <laughs> when it comes out. Excellent. Excellent. I like that. They, uh, and, and I'll have uh, those links in my show notes so that uh, anyone listening right now will be able to go back to those show notes pages and pull, um, pull that information up to be able to find you. So good stuff. Uh, and Tish, I have two last questions that are questions I like to ask my guests. And the first one goes like this. When life gets tough and you start getting so much stuff thrown at you that you may want to quit, how do you keep going? One of the practices that, that I have learned and I use all the time, and I talk about it in Mindfulness for Teachers, is a practice called intention setting. And the way I do this is the first thing I do is I re recall my, my, I recall why I decided to do what I'm doing. Like, what are the values that I hold that motivated me to go through the process of learning to be a teacher and then a teacher educator and now a researcher uh, and faculty at the university, why, why did I do this? <laughs> I tap into that strong feeling of um, the, the grounding in this sort of moral compass that I have, I would say. And then when I do that, um, I think about the intention that I have to be my best. Like, what is that? What is me at my best? Um, and then I set an intention to, to be that way. And sometimes it's more specific than that. Like if I'm having a particularly tough time in a social interaction, it might be that I have an intention to be patient, an intention to be compassionate. Um, whatever it happens to be in the moment that I'm dealing with, um, I usually create the, the, I set the intention to focus on that. Excellent advice. Love it. The uh, last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? Oh, this is such a great question. When I was writing Mindfulness for Teachers, the teacher that came to my mind that I, that I write about in that book was Miss Curtis. Miss Curtis was a high school English teacher. She taught um, creative writing. And this was one of the first years we had elective English for, it was kind of like what you would call AP English today. Um, for students who were doing really well in language arts, which I was, you got an opportunity to choose an elective uh, English and creative writing was one of them. 
And so I signed up for her class and she um, had us write in a journal besides writing other assignments that she had us do. But we had to write in this spiral notebook um, and she said, write whatever you want. It doesn't matter. You know, it's just an opportunity for you to get out, express yourself freely. And it was during a time I was going through some really awful trauma in my childhood or my adolescence. And so the stuff I was writing was very scary and dark. And she would reply in my journal with really supportive um, notes in response to what I was writing. And we never talked about it face to face, which was actually fine because it would have been embarrassing to talk to her about what was going on. But to have an adult who saw me, heard me and responded to me in such a loving way, um, it made a huge difference in my, um, in my adolescence. Um, when I was writing the book, I wanted to reach out to her and thank her. And I, and I found out she had just recently passed away. And so I didn't get a chance to thank her. But if I, if I had, I would have said, I want you to know how much those simple words of acknowledgement you gave me, what a huge difference they made in my life. And I just want you to, to thank you and let you know, because I think often we don't get to hear that um, from our students, even though it, we, you know, I, I never got a chance to tell her that. Um, I did tell her niece who uh, I got permission to talk about her name in the, for the book because I had to get permission from my publisher. And so I did tell her her niece and her niece was very glad to hear. That's cool. That's very cool that you were able to at least share in the, in the book with uh, uh, and, and telling her niece. So that's cool. Yeah. Awesome. You know, uh, Tish, thank you so much for talking with me today. Your book, Teacher Burnout Turnaround, Strategies for Empowered Educators, is timely, powerful, easy to follow, and shares ideas that will help positively transform our school environments. You know, all educators should read it, and wishing the best in all you do. Thank you. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.